Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And lots of interesting things going on in technology as always. The... uh, Congress has written a bill to try to limit the scope of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. I'll talk about what that bill is and why it's important. I think it's about time that we make a change to that bill. We're still trying to get IPv6 rolled out. It's been 10 years in coming, but it's rolling out really slowly. Apple is tracking all the cell phones that got stolen from their stores in the recent uh, in the recent riots. And the and the Zoom has actually caved in to Chinese government demands. And uh, the U.S. government claims that Huawei is also backed by the Chinese military. So we'll get into all of that. And then this week we're going to feature on Profiles in IT, uh, Catherine Booth. She was uh, best known as creator of the first assembly language, an assembler, to translate it to machine language. And of course, we had a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Bob in Maryland, one of our long-term listeners. Dear Doc and Jim, and the ever-present and well-behaved Mr. Big Voice. He wasn't with Mr. Big Voice last night, so he's not. he can't be sure of yeah. that. I, I think you're right about yeah. that. He's, he said, your lockdown show today, that would be last week's, came through without a hitch or even a glitch or a twitch. Pretty darn good. Uh, who is oh. he, Dr. Zeus? Yes, it is, Dr. <laughs> Zeus. I'm also trying to keep out, uh, keep an eye out for resources for Doc for Profiles in IT. Here's an article with a lot of IT con- contributors, women who led the way in computer programming. You've probably covered quite a few of these ladies, but there may be some that are interesting. Your show's excellent as always. Your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, thanks for the uh, list of women computer programmers. We've already covered a couple of them. We covered Ada Lovelace. She was on the list. We've covered Grace Hopper. Today, I'm going to cover a third person from the list that I haven't covered before, Kathleen Booth. She actually made major contributions to computer programming. She teamed up with her husband over there in the UK to do all that work. And, uh, of course, this article reminded me of the fact that Many of our foundational programming concepts came from women because in the beginning, uh, it was felt that programming was women's work, sort of like running a typewriter. And so they delegated all the programming tasks to women because men took care of the hardware. And so many of the initial programming breakthroughs were actually achieved by women. It's an interesting story. But 
they really didn't get much credit for all their work, and we're trying to fix that with uh, as we go back and review them. Thanks for that email, uh, Bob in Maryland. We got an email from um, Ernie in Colorado Springs. Dear Tech Talk, are super cookies from ISPs or other or other uh, individuals still a problem? Verizon, Adobe, AT&T all do something to do tracking. Uh, you know, do we still have to delete them? Do we have to worry about them? Uh, I'd like to understand what super cookies are and where they're actually buried in your PC or laptop. I'd like to know if they have chocolate chips. Yeah, they they will check on that. That would be a super cookie. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd, I I thought. Well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna like. Uh, uh, I think I'll Google up cookies just to sort of get the latest take on it. And I did come up with a recipe of chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we digress. That's right. Okay, uh, let's talk about what a cookie is. It's a small piece of code that's saved in your browser. So anytime you visit a website, the website will send, a, a, using HTTP, they'll, that's the protocol for the web, they'll send it back to your browser a, a, you know, a small text string, string, and your browser will store it in a special cache in a special storage area for cookies. Then the next time you visit the website, it will pull that cookie back up again, and maybe you could have configuration data on that, or you might have your login information on it, and it makes it easier to go back to the same website because the cookie retains information for you. And that was the initial idea behind cookies. They were invented in 1994 by a guy who worked for Netscape. Uh, and, uh, but then eventually advertisers decided, hey, these cookies are pretty good. Why don't we store tracking information? So anytime they go around, we'll just look at the cookies and then we'll see where they've been and we'll use that to deliver targeted ads. So cookies got a bad reputation because they were being misused by advertisers. And so then people started deleting the cookies so that the tracking information wasn't so good. So now enter the super cookie. It's another <laughs> technique, the super cookie. And uh, what the super cookie is, the day the information is not stored on your computer at all. It's stored with your internet service provider. So what happens is your internet service provider he actually intercepts your web requests and he injects a unique identifier header. In other words, he injects a number or a tracking number that allows anyone to identify who actually made that request. And he injects it into the request that goes out to the, to the website. And that number then, in addition to that, the ISP, in addition to injecting the uh, unique identifier header, he stores information on his website as to where you've actually been. So the data is stored on a database with your vendor. Now how this works then is, your vendor knows where you've, uh, where you've been, he knows, he knows a whole history about you, it's stored on their website. They give access to that database to people that are, to advertisers. And so they know that somebody with this tracking number uh, has been to all these sites, so they know your history. And then what they do is they wait until on a website where they're delivering ads, that tracking number shows up, they go to the Verizon website, look you up, they say, aha, 
this guy is interested in wrenches because he's been searching for wrenches. So they'll put in a bunch of ads for wrenches. So you can't delete these super cookies. Now, Verizon actually patented this technique. They started it over 10 years ago. But back in, in 2016, the FCC fined them for implementing super cookies without any authorization from the user. They fined them $1.35 million. So now Verizon has to allow you to opt out of the super cookies. They didn't eliminate the super cookies, but you have to opt out of the super cookie. And you can go that you can go to you can go to your variety you can log into your Verizon carrier, and you can and you can opt out on it. By the way, the SuperCook is used primarily for mobile phones, so it's the mobile phone carriers. AT and T was also using it back in the day, but once at once Verizon got fined, AT and T discontinued that program. But Verizon still is actively doing it. So you've got to go to the Verizon wireless website. And you can, uh, and I, I went there this morning and uh, I logged on. I just checked what my situation was and I opted out on all of the, uh, on all of the, uh, the tracking, the tracking um, methods with super cookies. Uh -huh. Now, now another way that you can keep them from knowing anything about you is you can have an encrypted data stream. So if you only go to websites that use HTTPS, which is, which is a secure socket layer or TLS, they have TLS certificates, an encrypted data stream. Uh, when you have that encrypted data stream, Verizon or the ISP cannot inject the header. Or you could simply always operate your cell phone with a VPN. If you operate it as a VPN, there will be no super cookies because they can't get into it. So that that that's another another good reason to use uh, to use VPNs. And I've got I, I've got VPNs on my uh, on my cell phone, but now I'm thinking. You know, I used to use VPNs only when I would be at Wi-Fi hotspots when I was traveling internationally. But now I'm thinking, given the fact that Verizon just loves to collect information on me, I might start using that VPN all the time. Good idea. Listen, that was that was a great question, Arnie. Uh, and I, uh, thanks for being a longtime listener. We got an email from Alex in Boston. Dear Doc and Jim, I just upgraded my laptop to Windows 10. I heard that Microsoft tracks everything I do with Windows 10. Is there any way I can protect my privacy by configuring my system differently? Well, uh, actually, everybody's tracking you these days because they, they sell that information, then make money on it. And it turns out Windows 10 collects all sorts of data and stores it on your PC's hard drive, or it sends it back to, to Microsoft via the internet. Now, most of the Windows 10 spying can either be disabled completely or reduced quite a bit if you know where to look. And people complained about Windows 10 because they, they just didn't like all the spying that Windows was doing. So in response to that, Microsoft released an easy to use your privacy dashboard. So you can go to that your privacy dashboard and you can configure what you will let Microsoft retain. You go to account.microsoft.com slash privacy you're logging into your Microsoft account. So you need a Microsoft account, which you probably have if you've registered your machine with Microsoft. That'll be the email address that you log in with. Log in with your Microsoft account, and that will launch the Your Privacy Dashboard. And you'll, uh, you'll, you can go down and you can see what data they have on your web browsing, on your searches, 
Uh, and you can see everything they have. So it was interesting. I, they had a lot of information on me. So I sort of disabled that, too. That was now, a great question. So you know, every, once they've yeah. got it, they've got it. But you can stop them from from getting additional information, right? Yeah, you can. You, you, you can't stop stop them from getting additional information. I mean, Verizon makes a lot of money selling yeah, that, selling that to super cookie data. It's like it's like a it's like a big business for them. Uh, and uh, Microsoft, they all sell it. They all sell your data. There's nothing free on the Internet. No, Gmail, no, you right. think Gmail's free? No, they're, they're gathering data about yep. you, about your emails and everything, and they use that to deliver ads. They sell that information to vendors, so it's not really free. You're paying with it by sacrificing your privacy. So here's – I wonder this. I, I think over time some people will figure this out and find you know the way to disable it like you have. Will enough people find a way to disable this that these people – these internet providers will have to find another way to mine your data? They'll keep looking for other ways. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's, it's, they make too much money. Yeah. It's too uh, – it is just too uh, – too lucrative for them. They will keep doing it because it with in this day of big bit of uh, big data and uh, machine learning, they can actually derive so much information from that that they just want your data. Yeah, and they're gonna they're gonna keep after it. I I think the concept of privacy in reality is pretty much out the window. <laughs> you can you can you can try to do it, but it's uh it's hard to hold back. Yeah, hard yeah. to hold back. Hard to hold back the. Uh, the trends out there. We got an email from uh, Peter in Fairfax. The hard drive on my personal computer has failed. I cannot boot up, and I need to recover some valuable photos on uh, on the uh, on the uh, hard drive. What are my options, Peter? And Peter in Fairfax. Well, Peter, um, of course. If you have a backup, you simply replace the bad hard drive and then restore everything from the backup, and you're good to go. But I'm thinking that you may not have a backup. So you've got several options. One option, you can, if, you want to, if you're willing to pay several hundred dollars, there's an excellent, you can go to an excellent company called Secure Data Recovery, securedatarecovery.com on the web, and they'll rescue your files for you. It'll cost you several hundred dollars, depending on how much time they spend. If you're willing to spend that much money, you'll get probably most of your data back. If, if the hard drive still spins, you know, if it's not totally trashed. Now, if you'd like to do it yourself and it's still spinning, there are a couple of software programs that you can use to try it out. I've talked about one of these before on the show, Recover, Recover, mm -hmm. yep. R-E-C-U-V-A, and you can download that. It's free from ccleaner.com slash recover, ccleaner.com slash recover, R-E-C-U-V-A, and it's a free tool. Recover will scan the sectors of your bad hard drive for uncorrupted files and will give you a report listing all the files that can be recovered. Then with just a few mouse clicks, it'll copy these files to a different drive. So if, you know, if everything works, I mean, Recover is not, does, is not the end all and be all, but, but it's, it does a quick and dirty recovery. And if that's work, if that works, that's you're good to go. Now, if that doesn't work, there's another tool that actually... Uh, is much more uh, complete and it can recover more data, but you have to pay for it. Recover My Files is the name of the uh, program, and you can get it from recovermyfiles.com, and it will work on any hard drive, and it, it as long as you can power up and spin the platters. Now it's not free. It's sixty-nine dollars for a two 
to computer license. But that's better than spending a few hundred dollars right. with, a, with an external op operator. So what you want to do is you can download uh, Recover My Files from recovermyfiles.com. You can get the free version and you can try it out and you'll scan your hard drive. It will tell you how many files you can recover and which files you can recover. However, it will not recover them until you pay $69. But the good news is you're going to know whether it's worth whether it's worth paying the $69. But only after before... you pay the $69. Yeah, well, you can scan it, and it will tell you what it will recover, and oh. then you can decide whether it's worth it. Gotcha. Yeah, so, so you do the scan with the free trial, uh, and they'll tell you what you can recover. You say, okay, it's worth it. I'm getting most of my files, and then you can decide to pay it. I remember one time, many, many years ago, but I didn't have programs like that. I had to go in, I, I had to go in through uh, to a hard drive directly using, you know, basically I was accessing the hardware directly using hardware commands, and and I was actually going through the hard drive and I was recovering files manually. But you know, the files are fragmented on the hard drive, so I was actually piecing together files because I didn't have the software tools back then to do it. But I managed to recover most of my files, but it took me about six hours. Mm. So these tools basically do that. They'll, they sort of locate all the fragments, put them back together for you, and they make it easy. So it's definitely worth If it works, it is worth $69. Yep, sure. Best of luck getting back your files. And in the future, I think you should use a cloud backup so you won't have this problem. Yeah. We got an email from Jessica in Ashburn. Dear Doc and Jim. I just bought my daughter her first cell phone, and uh, she loves watching videos on it. The problem is she's hearing impaired, and she can't make out the dialogue that's spoken on some of the videos. I know a lot of videos are available that are closed captions, but I don't know how to turn on closed captioning. Can I do that, turn on closed captioning for, for everything she watches on her cell phone? Jessica and Ashburn. Well, it is easy to enable subtitles and closed captioning on any recent uh, iPhone device. These are the following steps. You just tap on settings, then you tap accessibility, and then you tap on subtitles and captioning, and then you're going to toggle uh, an item that's called, you'll toggle it on, something called closed captioning plus SDH. And once you do that, anytime you play a video of, if captioning is available, it will actually play. Now, just below that toggle where of closed captioning and SDH, just below that, there's something called style. You can click on that, and you can pick different font sizes and different styles for the caption so that they, you know, so they're easier to read. That's all you do it. Once you make that change, anytime there's a closed close caption available, it will be playing for your daughter. We got an email from Stuart in Kilmarnock. Dear Tech Talk. I wanted to give my old iPhone to my granddaughter. However, I want to remove all my personal data mm -hmm. before I give it to, giving it as a gift. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. That'd be idea, a real Stu. gift, wouldn't it? That would be a real <laughs> gift, yes, Stu. You don't want any of that personal data going out to your granddaughter. Now, what's the best way to delete my data from my iPhone? Uh, Stu and Kilmarnock. Well, Stu, you can easily reset your phone back to factory defaults. So they, they, re they really make it quite easy. Uh, for you to do it, it's very uh, it's it's very simple. The process is very very simple. Uh, all you have to do is tap on settings again, 
And then you'll tap on general. Then you tap on something called reset. Click on reset. And then you'll tap on, then you've got a lot of choices on reset, like you've reset your network connections. There are about six or seven things you can reset, but you want to hit, the, you want to tap on the one that says erase all content and settings. You click on that. Now, now Apple won't let you do that easily. They gave you all these warnings. So they say, are you sure you want to do that? That's not reversible. You click on it again. They say, are you sure you really want to do that? It's not reversible. And then the third time, they come back and they say, well, if you want to go forward, you've got to give us your iCloud account. So then you've got to log into the iCloud account to prove you are who you are. And you're just not somebody who's picked up the phone and is just trying to cause trouble. And so then once you've done that, all of the, gone through all those steps and gone through all the warnings, it will go through a process where it erases all the settings on the phone, erases all the data. And then it, uh, and then it goes through a reboot process. And when it comes back up, you have the welcome screen just like you had when it was a brand new phone, and then she can go to the to the um, to the uh, ISP, go, go to the uh, uh, carrier, whatever carrier you're using, and you'll get a phone number assigned to that phone, and you can configure it right there at the carrier. It's just like a brand new phone. So listen, best of luck, Stu, with that. I hope your granddaughter enjoys that phone. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. You can learn more about Stratford University by going to the web and looking up stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Yes, today we're going to feature Kathleen Booth. She's an early pioneer in computer science, best known as creator of the first assembly language and the assembler, which was used to translate it to machine language so it could be executed. Kathleen Booth was born Kathleen Britton 
1922 in Stourbridge, England. She received a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics in 1924 from the University of London. She received a PhD in Applied Mathematics in 1950, also from the University of London. After graduating from the university, she became a junior scientific officer at the Royal Air Force Establishment, a British research establishment. She was there from 1944 to 1946. In 1946, she began working as a research assistant at Baerbeck College. And at Baerbeck College, she later became a lecturer and a research fellow. At the same time, she served as a research scientist at the British Rubber Producers Research Association. That was located in the same town. So she's kind of dual job because Baerbeck College had a relationship with the British Rubber Producers Research Association. They called Say it that Burp fast. Bra. I'm sorry. Yeah. I they, step B-R-P-R-A, Burpra. Burpra. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether they really did that or not. You're going to call it that, though. I'll call it that. Burpra. Yeah. <laughs> now, that same year, Andrew Donald Booth began working on a computer called the Automatic Relay Computer, ARC. Now, this was back in the very, this is 1946, you remember? This was back I, in the no, very I don't early remember 1946. Days. <laughs> very, very back in the way. And this was an early electromagnetic computer, uh, electromagnetic, where they basically had relays that would turn on and off. So you'd basically, and, and a relay would be on, it would be a one. Relay is off, it was a zero. And so you could basically do digital computing by switching these relays back and forth. But relays are big, they take a lot of power. So these electromagnetic, electromechanical computers, you know, could fill a whole room and weigh, you know, tons. But he was working on that. And so... She started working with them on that. Now, it turns out the ARC was built very close to the Burpra facility, <laughs> the Rubber Producers <laughs> Research Association. So she, so, so, so she would be, uh, she'd be at Burbeck College. And occasionally, she'd drop over to Burpra <laughs> to see what was going on. And, uh, and, and this is where she met uh, Andrew Booth. Uh, and so, uh, and so she started assisting him with the ARC. She and another uh, research assistant, Xenia Sweeting, and they started working on the ARC. Now, the women constructed most of the ARC. Kathleen understood the hardware because she was assembling these relays. She understood, she understood the hardware deeply, and so uh, they assembled this machine, and then they had to program it to do something. Well, Kathleen's a woman. Programming is women's work. So that's what she started doing. She started programming it. So she started programming the computer, figuring how to get it to do things. Now, the following year, uh, they, got a research, a, they got a research grant to travel to the U.S. for six months to collaborate with uh, computer scientists at, uh, at Princeton. And, uh, and they went over to, uh, uh, to meet John von Neumann, who was of course, one of the uh, preeminent computer scientists at the time, and he was working at, uh, at Princeton, same place, this, actually the same building where Einstein was at huh. the time. And they, uh, they, and they discussed the von Neumann architecture because von Neumann was a real pioneer in coming up with what kind of architecture you need for computers. And so he developed a computer architecture that had memory. And so the von Neumann computer architecture, because the ARC did not have memory, you would just program the relays and it would just 
It would just sort of ratchet through it and do a calculation. So there was no memory for no long-term memory to say to store a program, which would be very convenient. If you had long-term memory to store a program, you wouldn't have to reprogram it every time you went to something different. You just load in another program. And so von, the von Neumann architecture had five elements to it. It had a processing unit that would actually do the calculation. It had a memory unit for short-term memory. If you'd want to do an intermediate calculation, you'd, you could store it there, and then you could use it to do another calculation. And it had a control unit that would actually pass information back from the processing unit to the memory unit. It also had a mass storage unit. Now, this would be for long-term storage, you know, uh, for your programs or anything you want to have long-term. And so right now, I mean, look at this. Like in our current computers, we have RAM, which is quick storage. So that's the short-term storage. Our long-term storage is a hard drive. And, and then you needed some kind of input-output mechanism to input whatever input data into the program and then get an output from it. So you had five elements. Processing unit, control unit, short-term memory, mass storage, input-output mechanism. And so they studied that, and when they uh, and they decided they wanted to make the ARC and uh, uh, transform the ARC into a uh, Neumann architecture, von Neumann architecture. So they redesigned the ARC, and they called it ARC two, and incorporated this memory. And Andrew designed a drum system for long-term memory, where it's stored on a drum, on a spinning drum. This is a precursor, actually, to, uh, to, to spinning hard drives. And the computer, the ARC-2, was officially finished May 12, 1948. Now, upon returning from the UK, Kathleen co-authored a, a paper called General Consideration in the Design of All-Purpose Electronic Computers. And she described the ARC-2. Now, in particular, she described how you, would, um, how you would program it. And so, because being a woman, that was her job to do the programming. Her husband, you know, did the hardware design. Now, she, the paper that she wrote was quite interesting. I mean, she had a whole section in there for synchronous versus asynchronous operations. This, if you were asynchronous, you could have multiple instructions being executed at the same time in parallel. This was a precursor to parallel processing. It was a precursor to what we have now, say, with Intel, with these multi-core these multi-core chips where you might have seven or nine cores on the chip, so you can do seven or nine processes in parallel to speed things up. She was already thinking about that and how you would how you could design a computer that would have that capacity. Now, she was one of the first researchers to come up with the idea of software. You see, in the beginning, they just programmed the switches. They would turn a bunch of these switches on and off. That'd be the input, and it would do the calculation. So the so they, and so they, you know, in the beginning, you would just configure the machine to do the calculation. You wouldn't have software. And she came up with the idea of software. And, she, and then she said, there's got to be an easier way to program these things. Because, like, if you want to move uh, a, a stored memory to another location, uh, there's, a, uh, there's an eight-digit sequence of zeros and ones where you'd have to set the switches mm -hmm. to do the move. So she came up with assembly language where what she would do is she would write three letters, M-O-V, and if you would put M-O-V there, it would put in those eight binary digits. So you don't remember the binary digits, you just remember the word, move. And so that was assembly language. And then, of course, then she could write more complicated programs with assembly language quicker. 
And then she had to have a way to convert the assembly language into the zeros and ones. So she had to create an assembler, and that was essentially the, like, the, like the first compiler. So she created an assembler. And her idea was to make uh, you know, the, the language more user-friendly. And so her work on assembly language was a precursor to the higher-level languages that came shortly thereafter, Fortran and COBOL. And so she was the first person thinking through the software process. So she was one of the early pioneers in software engineering. Now, as you might expect, you know, she went to the U.S. in 47 with Andrew. They ended up getting married. Ah. So she she married uh, Andrew Booth. Remember, her name was originally Kathleen Britton. Now it's Kathleen Booth. They married in 1950. And they became a team. They would, and they, in the time there at the college, at uh, at Birkbeck College, at the time at Birkbeck College, they produced the ARC computer, the ARC-2 computer, which is the automatic relay computer. They re- produced the simple electronic computer, SEC, and the APEC, the all-purpose electronic computer. Now, she regularly published papers on her work on the ARC and the APEC. She co-wrote uh, a... Um, a, a paper called Automatic Digital Calculators, which illustrated her planning and coding programming style. She was trying to explain how she programmed. Now, the final chapter of this book that was written in 1953 gave possible applications for computers. She had X-ray crystal structure analysis, and certainly you can, you can, you can use computers for that very well. She had computers and lingui- linguistic processing, in other words, speech recognition, And she was predicting this back in 1953. She talked about machine learning and intelligence back in 1953. I mean, she was way ahead of her time. It was really quite, when I went back and looked at some of these papers, it was really quite amazing. In 1957, she co-founded the School of Computer Science and Information Systems at Birkbeck College, along with her husband, Andrew Booth, and J.C. Jennings. Now, Shortly thereafter, in their last, you know, she was there at uh, Birkbeck College until 1962, and she started working on neural networks back in, back in the, uh, you know, back in the uh, before 1962, and these, this, and this was a precursor to machine learning, and she used that to uh, to recognize patterns and characters. So she had two applications. She wanted to use it to recognize different animals. So they had pictures of animals, and so they, they had the machine to recognize, is this a seal or is it a horse, different kind of animals or mammals. And then she used that same technique to recognize characters, which was a precursor to optical character recognition. In 1958, Booth wrote a book, her first full book, which she described, which where she described how to program the APEC computer. And this, I mean, this pro, this is uh, the, the the programming principles that she outlined are, you know, are still used today. Now she left Birkbeck in 1962. So what happened was um, her husband wanted to become head of the department, the computer science department. They didn't pick him, and they weren't very happy with that. So the next day they both resigned and left, hmm. and they ended up going to uh, Canada. They moved to Canada, yeah. And she became professor, uh, she became uh, research fellow, lecturer, and associate professor at University of Saskatchewan in Canada. 
she was there for 10 years continuing she and her husband continued to to research on uh you know on on new computer structures in 72 she left uh she left the university of saskatchewan she moved to to the lakeland university and she became professor of mathematics she was there until 1978 when she retired and after retirement uh she published a paper with her son, Dr. Ian Booth. Now, she did that in January of 1993, so her last paper published was with her son, and it was using neural nets to identify marine mammals. And that was done in 1993. Now, Kathleen's inventive mind and large contributions to programming have gone largely unnoticed. In fact, there's some man who was credited with inventing the assembler assembly language, and it was like a couple years after she did hers. That, that was one of the problems. Women were not given full credit for what they did. But now people are beginning to belatedly recognize her contribution. I mean, assembly language and assembler alone led to high-level languages of Fortran, Fortran and COBOL. I mean, she invented the idea of, of abstraction in making computer languages. She was truly a pioneer in computing and program. So there you go. Everything you would ever want to know about Kathleen Booth. Hope you're paying attention because your chance to turn knowledge into free food comes up next. And we play the pop quiz on Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 104.5 FM in Loudoun County, and also 103.5 FM HD2 and 103.9 FM HD2. Learn more about Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. 
Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can sit down in your virtual, vir- the virtual audience can sit down, please. Yes, they are you. sitting down. You know, because they stand up, I can't see them in the video. That's scene. true, and we have kind of a COVID pit built for them, so it looks like they're standing, but they're sitting. Okay, that's very good. Well, this, of course, is not just a radio show. It's a classroom of the airways, so we give a pop quiz to see whether the audience has been listening and yes. learning. And if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you've got tickets to find dining at one of the uh, Stratford University dining rooms once they open, and we're getting close to opening, I'm sure. Good. Now, earlier in the show, I was talking about Kathleen Booth. And in 1978, she retired from uh, Lakeland uh, University there in uh, Canada. And uh, many years later, she wrote another research paper, which was called Using Neural Nets to Identify Marine Mammals. Who was her co-author? She co-authored If you know the answer to today's question, well, now's your chance to pick up your device, give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're studying to be a junior scientific officer in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. We're pretty sure it's working. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. He was very anxious. He, I'm sorry he cut you off there, Doc. No, that's okay. No, it's okay. I've gotten everything said, mostly what I wanted to you say. You did. Now, the senators are proposing to reform Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Now, two senators on Wednesday introduced legislation to the Senate to reform that a particular bill, which, as it's currently written, it exempts platforms such as Facebook and Twitter from legal liability for materials they post. Now, see, the idea initially with that Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Act, they were treating these platforms like bulletin boards. Suppose there's just a bulletin board on the wall. Somebody comes by and they just pop up a message. And then somebody pops up a message. And the bulletin board itself doesn't control who puts up a message. If you put up a message, boom, it's up there. And so if these message boards are like that, uh, they don't hold the message board accountable for the individual messages. If somebody does something or says something that's wrong with the item that they posted, the liability goes with that person, not with the platform. So the platform was viewed as, a, as neutral. It was, was there also viewed another way to look at it would be like a telephone company. You could do something illegal by making a phone call with someone. They don't hold the telephone company responsible. They right. hold accountable the people that made the phone call. So that works out well and good. But now what has happened, these big tech, they've got these tech companies have gotten so powerful that what they're doing is there, somebody puts a message up there that, and that they don't agree with. They say, oh, no, you can't put that message up there. We're not going to allow it. No. Take that message down. We'll allow this message, and they start restricting what messages can be posted. And that undermines the basic idea of Section 230. And what these senators are saying, they're saying, look, if you're going to go in there and start restricting access to these message boards, and it's sort of, they're all, you know, Facebook and Twitter Instagram, these are all message boards or digital message boards. If you're going to do that, then you've become essentially an editor of content. 
And so then what's on your board, you're liable for, and people can sue you. And people can sue you if you if you're improperly uh, improperly filtering them, and you then are no longer shielded by the Communications Decency Act. Now, uh, and so that's what they were doing. And they originally uh, gave them the act did give them one out that they could filter information if, say, it was child pornography or mm -hmm. it was something which was not good. For society, and so what these mess, what these companies are doing—Facebook and Twitter—and um, uh, that they, what they're doing now, and is uh, an Instagram. They're now saying that political views that they don't agree with are bad for the public, just like child pornography. So therefore, they're going to use the child pornography carve out to restrict them, and Congress saying, "No, you're misusing that." So they've introduced legislation called Platform Accountability and Consumer Transparency Act, called PACT, P-A-T. It was introduced by Democratic Senator Brian Schultz, Republican Senator John Thune. And, uh, and they are, they're going to require the tech platforms to explain their content moderation practices, have a complaint system uh, that allows that allows users to complain about their decisions. They have to have an appeal process for those decisions, and those decisions have to be transparency. And it would offer no immunity for illegal content if companies are notified when uh, at all. So the the um, it includes one provision put forward by the Justice, Justice Department uh, to reform Section 230. There's, a, there's also another bipartisan bill introduced by Lindsey Graham, uh, Republican, and Richard Blumenthal, Democrat, to curb the distribution of sexual abuse materials on these text platforms, on these uh, digital bulletin boards. And that'll be taken up by the committee, too. I think it's high time to change this rule somewhat. I think we, need, I think, I think we still need some way to protect these platforms, but they have to be neutral platforms. We do not have a winner yet. Why don't you go ahead and ask the question once again, Doc? Okay, uh, we talked about Kathleen Booth. Uh, after uh, after she retired, she uh, she actually wrote a paper using neural networks to recognize mammals, and she, and she did it with someone in her family. Uh, who might that have been? And allow me to ask a um, an alternate Second. question. Okay, what is what is BRPA? Okay. BRPRA stand for BRPRA. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. So if you if okay. you know the answer to either of those questions, you need to call us. 877-9-3639-333. Well, that's the number. All right. We're going to take a short break, Doc. We'll be back in a minute. It's uh, Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Observations from the Bunker. Today, we're going to have advice from the Oracle of Omaha. The Oracle Warren, of Omaha. Or Warren Buffett. Ah, okay. <laughs> so he was talking about uh, how you should craft your career. And I thought he really gave some good advice. So he says, this is a quote from me. He says, when people ask me where I should go to work, I always tell them to go to work for the person that they re admire the most. And it's crazy that it takes some in-between job just because it looks good on your resume. Do what you love and work for someone who you admire the most. And then you give yourself the best chance at being successful in your life. He says, forget about the advice of climbing that corporate ladder to build the perfect resume, to land the perfect job in the dream company. No real key success is crafted with a perfect background, which is just on paper. It's finding someone to work with who holds the power to propel you forward. Fashion, you could do it on your own. The admirable person would be someone in a leadership position. They could be somebody in a leadership position at your current company or somebody who you know or know of in another company. Plain and simple, the best job is not the job that pays the most, but the one where you have the boss who you admire the most. Now, Buffett likes to quote Isaac Newton. If I've seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. So you want to find some giants to work with. Mm -hmm. The person you eventually admire the most will undoubtedly be a leader. And a leader who you admire and trust, and you'll give your best efforts there. It's a leader who will set you up for long-term success. They'll support you. They'll let you fail forward. They'll show you what you learned from your mistakes so that you can propel even higher the next time. Uh, they'll give your work purpose and meaning. And in return, they receive employee loyalty, commitment, and intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation because you love to do the work, not extrinsic motivation because you're getting paid more. That is the key. And in turn, if you get a leader like that, you will be mentored and guided and you're 
career will be accelerated. Now, this actually is a lot of what we talk about at Stratford our leadership programs. That's a level five leader. That's someone who senses what the team needs, gives the team the tools they need to be successful. And when the team succeeds, they give the team all the credit. That's a level five leader. And they engender a great sense of motivation on the part of their teams. And in our leadership courses, we show that if you are mindful, if you're mindful of what of the moment, you can feel what other people need. And that mindfulness gives you the tools to connect with your team at a level and give them the tools that they need. And so a real leader is interested in getting to know the people who work for them, their interests, their concerns, their dreams, their gifts, their deficiencies, their goals. And in the end, that kind of leader will make you a more rounded person. That is great advice from the Oracle at Delphi. There you go. No, Oracle at Omaha. Omaha. Close yeah. enough. All right. We're gonna we've got somebody who'd like to play the program the, the pop quiz. Let's go to MC who's calling us from Silver Spring. MC, you there? Hello, MC, you there? Yeah. MC. All right, we're gonna try. I, I can hear him there. He just can't hear us. MC. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you. Yeah, okay. Go ahead, Doctor uh, Shirts. Go ahead and ask the question. Early in the show, I was talking about Kathleen Booth. She co-authored a paper using neural networks to identify yeah, marine I mammals. Yeah, you. Who did she co-author it with? Uh, she co-authored it with her son. Very good. Very MC, good. Thank Perfect. you very much. We're going to send that prize right out to you, and uh, very good. Another successful pop quiz. Dr. Shirts, you may, if you'd like to, continue on. Yes, we will. We'd like to go. I'm looking at IPv6, IP version 6. That's the sixth version of Internet Protocol, which which fuels the Internet. Of course, the Internet was, uh, you know, goes back years. It was, uh, you know, the summer of 1976 when Bob Kahn and Vince Cerf came up with the first TCP IP protocol, and they've gone through multiple iterations. IPv4, in the original internet protocol, they had 32 bits in the address space, which meant you were limited to how many individual addresses you could have. And and a couple of years ago, we ran out of addresses in the address yeah, space. right. Gone. We were, they're gone. And so, and so the feeling was we need to get another version. Now, IPv6 has 128 bits in the address space. I mean, and that's enough to have addresses for everybody, everybody in the earth, probably every blade of grass on the earth. I mean, it's, (laughs) it is a lot of addresses. And so it's basically two to the 128th power. It's a big number. And uh, everyone was thinking that there would be this huge push for IPv6. So IPv6 was launched in 2000, uh, no, 1996. And uh, so everybody was super excited about this. And uh, now we're marking, uh, it was IPv, first defined in 1996, it was launched eight years ago. Okay, it took, you know, it took several years before they even got the launch. Finally launched eight years ago. And everybody thought that there would be plenty of, uh, plenty of spaces now, it, uh, you know, and so, but unfortunately, uh, the movement to IPv6 has been very slow. Now, the world ran out of IPv4 addresses in November of 2019. So you'd think that people would be on a, rushing to go. So, um, but IPv6 is still rolling out slowly. And actually, there, 
what the internet service providers uh, providers are doing, they're reusing the old addresses. They keep recycling them. Companies turn them in, they recycle them. So they're making do. So there's not enough econo economic incentive. And so it's still probably going to take a few more years before we have IPv6. Right now, most of the websites are IPv4. And I'm telling you, the masters behind the internet are not happy with the slow transition. Mm -hmm. But it's gradually moving on. We'll probably be IPv6 in another 10 years. Now, Apple is tracking all their stolen iPhones. You know, when they, they had a lot of Apple stores were broken into in yeah. New York, Philadelphia, New York. And uh, what they did is that they're, they're tracking them. And so they know which ones were stolen. And so you turn on the phone, the stolen phone, and it says, please return to Apple. And yeah, the, the, it says the, the device has been disabled as being tracked. Local authorities will be alerted. <laughs> so yeah. if, they, if they try to use the phone, uh, you, you can track it with, with GPS. So they're hoping that that tracking will encourage people to turn them in. It's not they're not getting too many turned back in, though, I have to say. I can't even, I can't even wonder why. Now, you know, Chinese companies uh, are always suspect in that being they're being, uh, you know, monitored by the Chinese military. Zoom, of course, is a Chinese company. It was it was started by a guy from Beijing. He, he lives in the U.S., but they still have to kowtow to the Chinese government. And Zoom admitted that it suspended user accounts in the U.S. and Hong Kong at the request of the Chinese government. And it further revealed that it blocked or removed meeting participants in, for, in, at meetings in mainland China that were dealing with the Hong Kong uh, uprising. Now, Zoom suspended accounts of three human rights activists uh, who were holding online, online discussions regarding the Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, now, two of these were based in Hong Kong and one was in the U.S., it said that it suspended the accounts of request of the Chinese government. So now Zoom is going to have to prove that it really is independent and just not a puppet of the Chinese military. Very the, same, uh -huh. the same thing is true with Huawei. U U.S. claims they're backed by the military government. Listen, uh, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website Check out the programs. That website would be at www.stratford.edu. Check out the programs there, health sciences, culinary arts, hospitality, software engineering, business accounting, and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.